Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, will you please open it at chapter 4 of Philippians. <coughs> I, receive, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent to me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am satisfied. Now I receive from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So in glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. In verse 15, Paul writes, You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I was in Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. I want us to look at this single word, share, and see what it means. If I was to ask you, to, in five minutes, Give me your understanding of this word share. I wonder what you'll come up with. It's a word which is used by Paul in several places in Philippians. He uses it extensively elsewhere, and so too does John in one John. In Philippians, he actually starts at the very beginning of chapter 1 with this word share, which can also be translated partnership. Remember in verse 4, he speaks about rejoicing, having great joy in the Philippian Christians. And then very quickly, he goes on to describe the reasons why he is rejoicing. Because of their partnership in the work of the gospel. In verse 5, together they're shared in the ministry of the gospel. And then in verse 7, he rejoices because of their partnership in the grace of God. Together with him, they had been 
recipients of God's great mercy, his great gift of unmerited favor. And so he rejoices in that. Then he goes on, thirdly, to look at suffering in verse 7. And there he speaks of their partnership in suffering for the gospel's sake. And he rejoices that together with them himself, they have shared in great agony and anguish as they endured great suffering in the preaching of the word. But he goes further. Their partnership actually is also a financial one. So when we get to chapter 4 and verse 15, he speaks of now this partnership in terms of material need. That the church in Philippi had expressed concern for him and in doing so had entered into a partnership with him whereby they assisted him financially. So this word sharing, this word partnership, what exactly does it mean? And the Greek, as we all know, is koinonia. But what is koinonia? You know, we say fellowship. But what's fellowship? A cup of tea after the service. Is that what fellowship is? You have a nice supper when the service is over, and then we say, <coughs> we've had fellowship together. This word fellowship has different expressions, different meanings, so to speak. You can use the word koinonia for fellowship, koinonia for communion, koinonia, fellowship for the common good, belonging together. It can mean society, believe it or not. It has a meaning in that direction, as well as modern-day communication. It can involve sympathy and emotions, because there's a variant of it which has to do with feelings and emotions. So where does this word actually take us? Where do the ideas come from? If you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the Mosaic laws, you have this great emphasis on how Israel, the people of God, as she leaves Egypt, is meant to look after one another. They are now a community. Yes, a community of different families and tribes, but they constitute a single community, the people of God, the nation of Israel. And they have duties and responsibilities, one for the other. Now, they are also meant to look after those outside of Israel, and so you've got some rules concerning the strangers and the migrants. But the dominant idea is that the people of God must care for each other. If they fail in doing so, then they fail the God who brought them into being. And that's a failure that could never be countenanced. And whenever that failure occurred, then God came and judged his people, particularly those who oppressed his people. So when you get into the New Testament, you have the Lord Jesus speaking about love and commands to love. 
There are four commands to love, and I'm sure you know them all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love, must love, your enemies. That's three. What's the fourth? What's the fourth? You think about it. What's the fourth command to love? Help me. A new command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You read John 13, you read through to John 17, and then you read 1 John, and the same echoes are there which is expressed in John's Gospel that Jesus calls his disciples to love one another. It's very difficult to forget, isn't it? The church is very good at loving the outsider. She finds it very difficult to love the insider. There's a lovely verse in the, uh, the Songs of uh, Solomon, which says, other people's vineyards have I kept, but mine own have I not kept. In other words, you spend your time, if you're a gardener, looking after everybody's gardens, but your own garden you don't bother about, and you allow it to run riot. What Jesus is actually saying in the verses about love he is saying that the new community which will be brought into being by my blood will be a community of love. And if you ask me what's the best way of translating koinonia, I would say the single phrase, a community, I'm sorry, I've misbehaved. I thought I'd switched it off. Uh, a community of love. And you say to me, but why is that so important? A community of love which is, I'm sorry, can I, if you give it to, to Caroline, she'll know what to do with the thing. You can throw it away. It follows me around like anything. This community of love, which is koinonia, but why is it so important. We come to the book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 32, 42. And here we find the new church coming into being. And what do we read about them? They met daily, they broke bread, they grew, but why did they grow? Because of the spiritual, of ministry, but also caring for each other. At the very heart of their existence, was a compassion and a love for each other. So when you get to the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul writes, do good to all men. Yes, we must, but especially 
to the household of faith. In other words, we have a responsibility to care for each other. And that's why in 1 John, John writes that if we say we love God and we have no care and compassion for each other, then what is the nature of our faith? What is the nature of our religion? So this koinonia is the very essence of our being, of who we are and what we are. When we think of mission and missionary verses, I say to you, what's the classic missionary verse? What do you say to me? Matthew 28. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Now imagine you are all orthodox Christians and I say to you, what's the classic missionary verse? You wouldn't say Matthew 28. You will actually say John 13. A new command I give unto you that you love one another. Because they practiced mission in the context of community. The largest missionary movement that ever arose occurred between the 7th and the 11th centuries. At the height of Islam, as it was spreading, defeating church after church, wiping out empires that existed, an unstoppable religion that was at its heart anti-Christian, the greatest missionary movement arose in northern Iran and northern Iraq. It took the gospel into Central Asia, places like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. It then went into China, and by the 11th century, China was almost converted to Christianity. It went into Japan, it went to the Philippines, it went into India. And at the heart of their missionary strategy was a very simple principle, a community of love. So they formed themselves into small communities and they loved each other and they cared for each other and so they went out preaching the gospel. And when people saw them, as we read of the, in the early church history, see how they loved one another so people actually joined them and salvation occurred. Who was it who influenced Wesley? Zimzendorf, Count Zimzendorf. And what was his missiology? It was a community. And he created an economic community where Christians worked and they pooled their resources and they looked after each other and they went out preaching and spreading the gospel from place to place. And it influenced Wesley. And Wesley was saved. And Methodism and the evangelical revival occurred. This koinonia, which we see here, and which Paul is talking about, which has its echoes in the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus, and we see Paul developing it together with John, is centered on a very single truth, that the church is more than just an individual. It is made up of the ecclesia, those called out of the world. And together they are meant to be a light to the world, a witness to the world. They speak 
to the world of another age that has come, another kingdom that has dawned, of a new life that is now present, a life that is based on Christ, a Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. And now, in turn, they must love totally and utterly. And as they love, so that message will go out. So the apostle is addressing this community of love, which he helped to initiate 10 years previously. And at the very start of that early church that he brought into being under the Spirit of God, there was this underlying message about being a community of love. In verse 12, we find the circumstances of the apostle being outlined. He says, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret circumstances what were they physically there are those who suggest that he wasn't too well you find that he uses the word afflictions later on in verse 14 or troubles was it failing eyesight did he have tummy problems no one is quite sure but there are those who allude to the fact that physically he wasn't in very good shape. He literally had worn out his body. Materially, he wasn't in good shape either. Remember that Paul supported himself in his tent making. He did not want to be dependent on others. Although, as we read here, the Philippians, perhaps alone, had assisted him. But now... He is in Rome. He is in chains. That means he is chained to a Roman soldier day and night. Now, fortunately, he's not in a prison. He is living in his own accommodation, but he has to rent it. That's the point. He has to pay for it. And he has to provide food for himself. And when it comes winter, he has to provide for fuel. Now, how is he going to do that? Is he going to work? To his tent making, he can't. He is now dependent on others to care for him, to provide for him materially, to supply the necessary financial support he needs just to survive day by day. So physically, he is in a difficulty. Looking at himself now in terms of finance, he is in a difficulty. Looking at the future, what awaits him? Well, he doesn't know. He's appealed to Caesar, but it could be death. And so he's living, as it were, in a vacuum, uncertain of what is to come, knowing only the present, and having to survive day by day. It's not easy to live like this. It's rather intriguing that in 2 Corinthians 11, 
he has it to describe his experiences. Let me read to you how he described what he had experienced as a full-time missionary worker. In verse 23, he says, Are there ministers of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a, a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings and often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardships, through many a sleep, sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And beside these things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? It's very difficult to cope with one's emotions when you read that list of how our dear brother Paul suffered. And so his circumstances is what is being opened up here. What he was going through. And he opens his soul to the Philippians. He does not hide his needs. Rather, he said, I know what it is to be content. Oh yes, I've been hungry. I've been wearied, but my trust is in God. I have a divine sufficiency, not self-sufficiency, that is stoic. A divine sufficiency, because he has met my every need, and I will continue to trust in him and be content. But also, I have a physical need that needs to be met. You know, I hear a lot of People talk about begging bowls and Christians shouldn't appeal for money and they talk too much about it. And why do Christian organizations, missionary societies and missionaries always want things? I think as Christians we're in danger of becoming very cynical. We're in danger of becoming very hard. You know, we look at those whom we send out to be our missionaries. If we are a community of love, then they are an extension of us, the church. And therefore, their concerns, their needs are ours. Their circumstances are ours. We are part and parcel of their existence, and they are a part and parcel of our existence. And that's why the church must care for its missionaries. And you're a wonderful church because you not only have 
a missionary weekend. You've got a committee, the deacons. You look at your people whom you support, and you are involved with them in their lives. And that is what it is meant to be. And as we think of the wider church, it is vital that we do not forget them as well. It is said of American missionaries that when they are in a situation, their home churches will become involved with those churches to which their missionaries go. But when their missionaries return from the field, then they stop being involved with those churches. Brothers and sisters, your involvement cannot be on the basis of just missionaries. It must be on the basis of a community of love. The circumstances of the churches today across the world. May I say, it is most appalling. I was talking with Caroline earlier. She just got an email from Syria. The winter is very cold. And one of the requests for the Christian community is they need blankets. Urgently, three and a half thousand blankets. About a month ago, the cost of a blanket was 30 US dollars. It's now gone up to 45 US dollars. If we provide three and a half thousand blankets, then we are up to over $120,000. And so suddenly you're thinking, if you get a cheaper blanket, we can get that for $30. If you get the better quality blanket, it's $45. You multiply that by $3,500. You see the difference? Or do you say, well, we can't do it? Is it my responsibility? And, you know, what for you when you go home and you'll snuggle under your duvet or you have your blanket? Suddenly in Syria, a blanket is life. And what do you do with a basic fact like that? Caroline this morning spoke of Pakistan. The frontier province of Pakistan uh, is a large Christian community. 80% of that Christian community do one of two jobs which she mentioned. They either sweep the streets or clean the sewers. In 2001, NATO attacked Afghanistan. So Afghan Muslims fled across the border into the northwest frontier and took the lowest jobs that the Christians had. And overnight, the Christians found themselves destitute. When you think of poverty in the Greek, there are two words. One is to be poor, but to have sufficient. The other is to be poor, but you are totally destitute. Overnight, this group of poor Christians found themselves totally destitute. And the big aid agencies came in, but they took the decision that they would sign an agreement with the Pakistani government not to assist the Christians. And so these poor Christians who were totally destitute saw the bandwagon rolling in, the money, resources to help the poor Muslims. And they said, what about us? Where is the church? Where is Christianity? Where is this 
community of love. We Christians, as I said earlier, are very good at loving the non-Christian. Very poor at loving the Christian. I learned that as a lesson after I became a Christian. I became a Christian as a young Muslim student in a little mission hall with a wonderful minister, pastor, tremendous preacher, and a tremendous loving community that literally embraced me. And I began to read the Bible and with their love and teaching and preaching and the prayers of the people, I became a Christian. And then I went home that night and said to my family, I'd become a Christian. And like all Muslim families, I was given an instruction with a weeping mother, if you continue to follow this newfound faith, you can no longer be a member of this family. But if you reject, then you stay a member of this family. And I looked at my weeping mother and says, I can't go back. I am a follower of Jesus. Within a short while, I was a tramp living in London. I was sleeping rough in Aldersgate Street, not far from where Wesley had his experience, in a bombed out building in the middle of winter. And it was cold. I became very dirty, very smelly, uh, very hungry, and quite sick. And I remember actually one night with another tramp saying to myself, we're sort of sleeping in this building. What am I doing here? I could be home with my family. And all I thought of was Christ and what he did. Now, this is my point. The group of Christians who loved me in the kingdom, why did they not never offer me a bed? They did that when I wasn't a Christian. Why did they not offer me a meal? They did that when I wasn't a Christian. Why did they forget? They didn't forget. Years later, they said to me, but Patrick, we prayed for you. I think that was wonderful. But where was practical love? Now, I bear no grudge. I have no hate, no anguish. It's part of one's life. I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but I learned at the very start of my Christian experience, never trust a Christian. Never depend on a Christian. Whereas with Islam, and I can tell you this for fact, I can walk out this door, if I see a Muslim walking down the road, I'll catch his eye, he'll catch mine, and then I'll do this to him. Invariably, he will walk over, and then his first question, do you know what it is? Have you eaten? and you'll go off together. And I say to myself, in Islam, there's a community. What has happened to us in our faith that we have lost this sense of being a community of love? And when we look at the circumstances 
of our Christian brothers across the world. The circumstances even of our own missionaries, our emotions, our passion, does not seem to extend to them. Paul's circumstances. But note secondly, the concern that the Philippian Christians had for him. Verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. This single word, concern, it was an expression of care. But note the point which I was trying to make this morning, that the, this new church at Philippi was a church that was under oppression. Her community was not made up of the rich and powerful. There may have been one or two, but most of them would have been at the bottom, including slaves, human tools. They faced this political problem of loyalty, the legal problem of what are they going to do with Nero. They faced the, the problems of discrimination and marginalization, of being accused of being atheists. So there they were, <coughs> at the very bottom of the society, facing a hostile authority. And you would have thought at that point they would have retreated into themselves. They did not. Paul says at this point you, they extended their concern for him. And it continued. There seemed to be a cessation for a time, but now it is revived again. Here is a suffering church caring for a suffering missionary. And together, they're going to look after each other. I find this an intriguing concept. We think we, the church, the suffering church, needs us. What could it be? We need them as much as they need us. We may be well off, they may have little. We may have be well off, and our missionaries may not have too much. But could it be that our life and existence is so bound up with each other that we are only truly one when the two are brought together? I think it's fascinating that Paul speaks of sharing in giving and receiving in verse 15. The two are brought together. Each of them gives to the other. Each of them receives from the other. You see, if you only give, it can make you into a kind of person that is not very nice. You can become very arrogant and conceited. If you only receive, then you can be a very selfish, mercenary person. But if you give and you receive, then you acknowledge what you have, and at the same time you recognize your dependence. And so your life is one of mutual interdependence. And this is what Paul is writing about, that the church is one. There is a mutuality about her as they are interdependent, not independent of each other. 
so here is Paul saying, you Philippian Christians, in your need, was concerned for me. It started at the very beginning, and now it has continued. And it involves finance. You shared, he says, in my troubles and in my afflictions, verse 14. You just didn't give me money. You expended your emotion. You felt. You experienced. John 11, at the graveside of Lazarus, Jesus wept. The previous verse says, and Jesus was moved with compassion. The word there in the Greek literally means to be kicked in the head by a horse. It speaks of tremendous emotion. And when it speaks of the next verse about the word compassion, an empathy, a medical word which literally means your heart being pulled apart. Here is Jesus with a broken heart as he confronts human suffering of the worst kind. There was no detachment, no sense of being removed, no sense, I'm not concerned. I will give, but I don't give with my heart and with my life. You send your missionaries, you support them. Brothers and sisters, be involved with them and in their troubles and in their afflictions, enter into them. You become involved with the wider church and partnership. Feel the pain and feel the suffering. We come to the Lord's Supper. We take the bread. The bread that we break, is it not the body of Christ? The cup that we take, is it not the blood of Christ? So we take this bread, which is the body. We take this cup, which is the wine. The head is in heaven and the body is on earth. And just as Jesus' body was broken, so his people, which is now his body, continues to be broken and their blood continues to be shed and we cannot walk away from that. Their life is our life and their blood is our blood. Their flesh is our flesh. We are a part of them and they are a part of us because we are one community and one body. And so this caring, this loving, this concern must go to the very depths for it to be true. So when he speaks now of sharing and giving and receiving, you can understand the place of money. Money is not at the start. It's the response of what you are. And what is far more important is what you give, which is what my final point, my third point is about. A sacrifice. But what kind of sacrifice? A consecration is what, how Paul describes their giving. If you look at verse 18, he speaks of, I am fully satisfied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
this gift was a consecrated sacrifice that would be a blessing to the giver as well as to the receiver. If we think of our gifts in that way, as being a consecrated sacrifice, being laid upon the altar, then perhaps we understand what Paul is getting at. But I want to go beyond money as I conclude. I want you to think about all the gifts that you have for the service of the church, for the service of the kingdom, for the service of the king, for the service of the church, both at home and worldwide. Every gift that you possess, every grace that you have, lay it at the altar and give it to God. And then it will become acceptable. Our time, our efforts. I'm now 65. And the question everybody keeps asking me is, Patrick, when are you going to retire? And Rosemary, my wife, sitting there, she very quickly pipes up and says, he'll retire when he gets to heaven. He can rest then. You know, this idea of retirement at 65, I don't get it in the Bible. Do you? Who says at a certain age, we give up everything and we go and buy a little house in the country and we play golf, I hate golf, or fishing, and waste my time until I die. Where do we read that? The old days, and I have friends who did it. When they retired, I think of a professor, he moved next door to the church and spent all of his time in the church serving the church. You know, we're strange people now. Where do we put our time, our effort, all the gifts that we have, that which God has so graciously bestowed upon us? So I want to ask you at the end, where is this consecrated gift? What is the offering you are going to make to God this night? Whether it be your time, your talents, your money, and above all else, yourself.